this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business and globalization and the effects these developments have had on our life and work and travel over recent times. Today on the show, we will be talking to Alan McKinnon, Professor of Logistics at Kuna Logistics University in Hamburg, Germany, and Professor Emeritus at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland. Alan has been researching and teaching in freight transport and logistics for over 40 years and has published extensively in journals and books on many different aspects of the subject and much of his recent research has actually focused on the links between logistics and climate change. So this is I think very apposite right now given that freight transport in all its guises uh, and warehousing and logistics um, uh, in terminals and warehouses and so on are among the major contributors to global emissions. And given that the COP26 uh, UN Conference on Climate Change gets underway in Ireland's native Scotland this very week. So I'm looking forward very much to discussing uh, how the freight transport industry will change in the coming years as it transforms itself to the reality of a low carbon future while continuing to support the modern economies and standards of living that we have all become accustomed to. So welcome, Alan, and thank you very much for being here with us today. And thank you for inviting me to take part, Patrick. You're very, you're very welcome. Maybe to uh, kick off, Alan, would you tell us a little bit about your current academic work and the areas of uh, research interest that you're currently involved in? Yes, uh, well, most of my research really is on the links between logistics and climate change, um, mainly on the mitigation side, you know, how we cut emissions from logistical activity. Um, I've also done some work, however, on how we adapt logistic systems and supply chains to all the climate change that is in the pipeline, uh, because I think there's a general recognition that freight transport is going to be very vulnerable, you know, to extreme weather events, for example. Um, so, yes, I've just recently finished some work for the World Bank, uh, which has been looking at how we can try to decarbonize logistics in less developed countries. Uh, because so much of the research that's been done in this field really has focused on the developed world. Um, but there's going to be an extra challenge, it seems to me, in cutting carbon emissions from these activities in, uh, in the developing world. And in terms of that, that research is ongoing, are you actively looking for uh, PhD uh, candidates who are interested in looking into this space? No, I'm not. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm, uh, <laughs> I, as you said, I, I think I've been 42 years an academic now, so I, I'm nearing the end, really, of my academic career. Okay. Uh, so I've, I've, um, I, I think I have one more PhD to examine. Okay. Uh, and I will probably complete the process. I've not been taking on any new PhDs. Very good. Very good. So in, in your work on uh, greening logistics, some of the work that I have read, uh, you talk of um, kind of five uh, strategies and one which is perhaps the definitive long term one is to you know change uh, power sources to low or zero carbon sources. And then you have these other four which are kind of mitigation strategies, as you refer to, such as improved efficiency, increased utilization, modal shift. And reducing demand. So, just coming back to the first one first, which is the kind of the definitive long-term solution. What do you think are the most promising technologies for changing uh, power sources for transport and logistics currently on the horizon or in development? Yes, that, that partly depends on the on the transport mode that we're talking about. Um, let's suppose we're looking at road freight. Um, so, for short distance uh, road freight movements like. Uh, deliveries in urban areas, um, I think it's going to be battery uh, electric uh, power um, that's going to be used. 
Um, we've already seen a, a reduction in the cost of batteries, quite a dramatic reduction. Uh, the, the total cost of ownership now for, for small vans that are battery powered are broadly comparable with uh, diesel and, and uh, petrol powered uh, vans. Uh, so I, I think that process is underway. We're also seeing an increase in the um, charging facilities for these uh, for these vehicles. So I think that end, that, that's in a sense the easier um, part of the logistics system to electrify. Um, long haul freight, I think, presents more of a problem for us. Uh, for many years, uh, people felt that we would not be able to power uh, long distance heavy trucks with batteries because the batteries would simply be too heavy. So the battery might be weighing, say, 12 tonnes uh, in a, a truck that would have a payload of only maybe 20 or 25 tonnes, and therefore that would be too heavy a weight penalty. Um, uh, however, uh, you know, there have been quite remarkable uh, advances in truck technology and battery technology in, in recent years. Um, and I, I think that now in smaller countries like Ireland and Scotland, um, where the length of haul is probably less than say three, 400 kilometers, um, I, I think ultimately batteries will be able to perform that, um, that task. Uh, supplementing in some countries, it seems to me, with an electrification of the highway. Uh, as you may be aware, Patrick, I mean, currently in, uh, in, in Sweden, there are two trials underway. There are three in Germany uh, where the highway is electrified and where we run trolley trucks. But, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. So, yeah. So this would look like when we see the trolley buses in some European cities, something similar, but on the highway. Exactly. Or, or, or in the railways. I mean, we've had many, many decades of electrified railways. Um, so, so this is a fairly mature technology that we're just transferring, really. From rail or from urban uh, trolley bus systems to, uh, to to road, um, I, I mean to justify the capital cost of doing that, uh, you know, you, you have to have a fairly heavy traffic in trucks. So it's going to be on, I think, particular corridors. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think that's another option. And then, of course, the, the final option I haven't mentioned yet is hydrogen. Uh, a, a lot of people are very enthusiastic about using hydrogen to decarbonize long haul trucking, um, and uh, there are problems with that. I mean, one is that almost all the hydrogen we currently have is essentially a fossil fuel. I mean, it's made from natural gas with a process called steam methane reforming. Um, it, this will only become a decarbonisation option once we can produce enough green hydrogen uh, from the use of low carbon electricity to electrolyze water. Um, and now there are ambitious investment plans to, to set up what are called gigastacks, this new generation of uh, plants that will electrolyze large amounts of hydrogen. Um, but the other problem with using hydrogen is the amount of energy you use in the process. If you do the life cycle analysis, um, going from the low carbon electricity to the wheel of the vehicle, mm -hmm. um, you can lose as much as 70% of the low carbon electricity. Um, and studies done in, in Germany and elsewhere have compared the capital costs and, and, and the long-term costs of, of decarbonizing long-haul trucking and uh, so long as the traffic volumes are sufficient, actually electrifying the highway comes out as one of the most cost-effective ways. And hydrogen comes out as the least um, cost-competitive uh, option. But, but I, I, I don't think there's any one of these technologies will necessarily dominate. I, I think they will coexist. And, and there'll, there'll be some operators, some countries that will tend to adopt one more than the other. It's interesting that those technologies, whether it's batteries and HGVs, or whether it's electrifying the highway, or whether it's using hydrogen, which I assume with a, with a fuel cell, it means yeah. a it means a fleet change, right? Is there any scope for 
drop in fuels that would be carbon neutral, maybe advanced biofuels or e-fuels. Is there any scope there? Uh, yes, there is. Um, because, I mean, the technologies I've just described, are in a sense, are longer term. You know, we're not going to have, it seems to be, mass production, mass adoption of hydrogen fuel cell of battery trucks, long haul trucks, probably until the late 2020s, maybe well into the 2030s. And of course, we, we have to meet, you know, um, quite uh, ambitious carbon reduction targets between now and 2030. So there are things we have to do in the short to medium term. And that's when we have to think about these alternative fuels. So um, people are, are portraying uh, some biofuels, particularly things like uh, biomethane uh, or, or hydro-treated uh, vegetable oil um, um, as, as, a, as a way of uh, getting some deep carbon reductions in the meantime. Of course, in, in, in Europe and in other parts of the world, we have been mixing biodiesel you know, with yeah. conventional diesel for many years. There is a certain um, percentage, right? In the, in so the about seven to ten percent, typically, it's seven percent in Europe. But the only problem with that is, is is where you source the the feedstock for the biodiesel, um, because if it's coming from waste material, uh, that's fine. Um, if, if we're getting it um, from the tropical lands, you know, from palm oil, uh, we're in the process. We're deforesting. <laughs> tropical rainforest, then when you do the life cycle analysis, that biodiesel can have a greenhouse gas footprint, you know, three times that of conventional diesel. Um, so, so it seems to me there's a limited amount of what we would define as sustainable uh, biodiesel. Um, but, but when you do the life cycle analysis, I mean, the, the, the two biofuels that, that really come out strongly, as, as I said, are, are biomethane, uh, produced with anaerobic digestion of waste material, um, um, and, and also hydro-treated vegetable oil, again, which is, is being essentially recycled. Uh, so both of those can give you quite a deep reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from road freight. But again, there's a, a limited amount of them available. So I, I think people are seeing these as helping with the transition to lower carbon trucking and helping us until the, we, we move to this new generation of low power train vehicles that are battery powered or powered by hydrogen. So if you if you are say the fleet manager of a, a business that's looking to do its bit here and you're looking at fleet renovation over the next uh, five years, what would you what should they be considering? Well, you you, you mentioned uh, that the five decarbonisation levers. So we've only focused on one at the moment. Yeah. Um, the, the other one is just to improve the energy efficiency of those vehicles. Right. So we reduce the amount of energy they're consuming before we get to the stage when we've got to convert that to renewable sources. So, um, I mean, one thing that's encouraging in Europe is that we have uh, fuel economy standards now for new trucks, you know, so new trucks sold after 2025 will have to be 15% more carbon efficient than, than the current ones. By 2030, it's going to be a 30% improvement in carbon efficiency. Um, so for the new vehicles, things are going to be improving. But for existing vehicles, you can retrofit devices. You can make sure that they're properly aerodynamically profiled. You can put in um, anti-idling devices onto the vehicles. You can move to low rolling resistance tires. Um, there are a combination of things that you can do, and each of them may reduce emissions by a few percent, but, but collectively, I mean, that can add up. And then Leaving the technology aside, I mean, there are operational improvements. I mean, you can, I always say the most cost-effective thing you can do to cut carbon emissions and road freight is train the truck drivers to drive more fuel efficiently and then monitor their behaviour and, if necessary, give them 
further guidance on, on how to improve their fuel efficiency. So, um, so, so I, yeah, my, my worry is there's currently um, a lot of discussion about switching to renewable energy. And as you said, in the longer term, that is how we will completely decarbonize road haulage. But that's a longer term option. And we really have to do a lot of things in the interim, really, to, to get the If I'm a fleet manager, there's an awful lot of stuff I could be getting on with in, in that regard, both um, on the efficiency side, uh, the yep. utilization side, and the operational changes to the way we run the business. And even if I am looking at uh, fleet renewal, there are more efficient vehicles coming down the track, and we may have some uh, biofuels and e-fuels and so on we can use in the period, say, up to 2030, and then we might be into a different scenario uh, thereafter. We're going to see these decarbonisation initiatives as being time-phased. You know, the beauty is there are many of them. And yeah. Most of the things you can do to cut carbon emissions, certainly road freight, are mutually uh, reinforcing. Um, but we have to, the last thing we want to do is simply sit back and wait until a new generation of low powertrain trucks becomes available. So we, we don't have that luxury, unfortunately. Yeah. So getting on with a lot of those uh, mitigation efforts, the challenges might be more managerial than technical, actually, because the technical solutions are there, right? Uh, that's true. Yep, yep. So um, but there are what I call the mob initiatives, managerial, operational, and behavioral. Uh, these are things which very often don't involve much capital investment. Uh, they often have a fairly low or even negative carbon mitigation cost, and they can be implemented in the short to medium term. And, and I think that's where we should be focusing our attention. Uh, um, and, and one thing that's going to assist that is the current digitalization of road rate. Um, because, and, and I use that term as a collective term for a whole suite of computing, IT, artificial intelligence developments. Uh, I mean, we're seeing quite remarkable advances in, in things like online load matching, for example. I mean, things have, that have been around for a while, like you know, freight exchanges, online freight exchanges, vehicle routing, computerized vehicle routing systems. Um, but with advances in, in, in computing, we're now getting a significant upgrade in, in the potential of these things to improve um, routing of the vehicles, the, the, the level of loading and so forth. And mm -hmm. I think all, all of that is going to translate into lower carbon emissions. Um, my university uh, with the European uh, Freight and Logistic Leaders Forum uh, last year did a survey of about 90 uh, senior executives in logistics in Europe. And one question we asked them was about the likely effects of digitalization on the decarbonization of, of logistics. And, and they, they were very positive. The vast majority of them said that digitalization would be transformational in this respect. So I think that's a, a really a good news story. <laughs> 93.9 Dublin South FM. So we've looked at changing energy sources. We've looked at efficiency and utilization improvement. The other mm -hmm. two strategies you spoke you speak about are, are modal shift and just reducing demands. Um, yeah. So we've seen this uh, supply chain redesign that's already been underway as a result of, of COVID and other disruptions like uh, Brexit and natural disasters, accidents, geopolitical tensions and so on. So do you think that shift in supply chain structure that's already underway will accelerate this uh, reduction in demand and modal shift or will it make it more challenging? What's your take on it? 
Yeah, well, on, on model shifts, and, and I think we're probably talking here predominantly about shifting from road to rail. Is that right? Yeah, road to rail and maybe to, to water, short, short sea shipping and so on. That's right. Um, there is a feeling that um, rail freight operations, certainly in Europe, actually benefited from COVID um, because um, the, the, the lockdowns in various countries reduced rail passenger movements to a greater extent than rail freight movements. Right. So, mm -hmm. so therefore, there was a lot more available capacity in real infrastructure in Europe to move freight. Uh, and, and so the transit times improved, the reliability improved, uh, the overall service improved. And, and that also demonstrated to companies just what the potential was for using rail. Now, of course, uh, we've rebounded from there and uh, you know, traffic has returned, not to the level it was before. But, um, but, but, but yeah, the, the feeling is. People get talking about building back greener, really. Uh, and I think that does apply to logistics as much as it does to other sectors of the economy. And um, I, I think it's, it, it will probably help to tilt the balance away from road towards towards rail. But that's going to be put into context um, because there are major policy initiatives now, certainly in Europe, to get much more freight onto rail. You know, so the European Commission Smart and Sustainable uh, Rail uh, Mobility Strategy that was published in December last year uh, said they want to increase the amount of freight moved by rail in Europe by 50% by 2030 and doubling it by 2050. Um, and uh, now that's going to be really difficult to do. I mean, but, but at least there's the sort of policy um, dynamic in place there to try to get as much freight off road and, and onto rail. And the reasons for that, I think, are quite obvious, because if you compare the carbon intensity of sure, roads, yeah. typically in, in Ireland or the UK or elsewhere, you're looking at an average, I think, about 90 grams of CO2 per kilometre per road, as opposed to maybe 20 to 30 for rail. And again, with rail, it depends if it's diesel powered or if it's an electrified service. And if it's an electrified service in France or Sweden, with electricity, it's got very low carbon. Then you get an even bigger differential between uh, between road. Yeah. So I, I've been uh, reading a lot about this space in in recent times. You know, uh, Bill Gates and uh, Mark Carney and some of your your own work and so on. And I get the distinct impression that the challenge here right now is not so much technological, though there are still technological uh, challenges, but the bigger challenges are actually economic and, and political. So uh, have we been moving politically in the right direction over the last 20 years, do you think? And what would you consider as a good outcome from COP26 in this regard? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. So if, if you ask this, yourself the question, to what extent have policy initiatives over the past 10 or 20 years helped us decarbonize uh, freight transport? Uh, some things have certainly helped. Um, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned at all is the relaxation of truck size and weight, you know, moving to what we call high capacity transport, you know, which has been well established for decades now in Scandinavia. But since 2013 in Europe, uh, we've seen more countries uh, relaxing the restriction on truck size and weight. And the analysis that's been done suggests that does permit greater consolidation of loads, reduces vehicle kilometres, cuts fuel and therefore reduces CO2 emissions. So that, that's been one policy initiative when it seems to. And there has been a, a lot of policy effort, as I said, to try to get more freight onto rail. That's not been so successful. Um, the EU in uh, its uh, 2011 white paper on transport 
uh, came up with this target that by 2030, uh, they wanted 30% of all freight moving more than 300 kilometers to either be on rail or on inland waterways. And, and if you look at what has happened since then, there has been hardly any movement in that direction. The, the freight model split in Europe has been pretty static uh, over the past uh, decade. Um, so it, it looks very unlikely that target will actually be, be achieved. Um, so uh, but there, are, there are other um, policies. I, I mentioned the fuel economy standards, which are now imposed on trucking. Um, which won't happen overnight, but, but, but through time, as, as companies replace their, their truck fleets with this new generation of uh, lower uh, lower carbon vehicles, um, you know, within these fuel economy regulations, I think that will help as well. So it's a mixed picture. There, there is one policy initiative which I think was introduced prematurely, and, and that has not delivered the greenhouse gas savings that were expected. And, and that is, and it's something we spoke about a moment ago, mixing biodiesel with conventional diesel. Um, the renewable fuel directives that were introduced, what, about 12, 14 years ago. Um, because that was done, I think, before we did the full life cycle analysis, before we looked at the amounts of biodiesel we would require and where the feedstocks would have to be sourced. Um, but now uh, we realise that, that a lot of the biodiesel we're mixing with diesel actually has a pretty high carbon footprint. So that was a policy initiative that was misfired, it seems to me. And coming out of COP26, what would you, if you said, okay, that's that's a result, what would that be? Um, yeah, I, I just wonder if in the, the core COP26 negotiation, um, if they'll be drilling down to look at transport initiatives. I, I think the... The, the main inter-country negotiation there will be focusing on more general issues, mm. which then will have an impact on all sectors, right? So, um, and, and it would then be for individual governments, it seems to me, to, to translate these wider policy commitments into things that will impact on the transport sector. Uh, um, in uh, July this year, for example, in, in anticipation of COP, uh, the UK government published its uh, transport decarbonisation strategy. Um, and, uh, and and if that's used as an illustration of what other com- countries might do, uh, it involves phasing out uh, diesel-powered cars, for example, diesel-powered trucks. So they, they, they want to stop the sale of diesel-powered trucks by 2040, for example, in the UK. Um, again, they, they want to get as much freight off the road network onto rail and on, onto waterways as well, if that is possible. Um, but there's some sort of things that I would like to see emerging from, from COP. I mean, I, I, I believe that um, we need to monetize CO2 emissions, right? We need to get um, that into the balance sheets of companies because it seems to me that would be a game changer. Um, uh, and therefore, we need a lot more work and commitment um, to introduce carbon pricing and emissions trading and, and so forth. And, and, and that will affect all sectors. I mean, at the moment, logistics is not covered by many carbon pricing schemes worldwide. But, but through time, I think it will. And I think then um, the, the price mechanism will be the thing that will drive logistics decarbonization. Yeah, that the either the economics or the politics of the uh, topic shifts rapidly at some point um, where we get a kind of a paradigm shift to get us out of this. We've been going through this kind of tortuous 
um, slow process. And you can see maybe at some point the economics, either the politics or the economics or both, are going to shift at some point quite rapidly. Would you would you concur with that? Yeah, it might be wishful thinking that will happen. I mean, it needs to happen, you know, because we're we're getting so close to exhausting our carbon budget. I mean, we do need radical shifts of that sort. If you take a global perspective on this, the problem is that, that fossil fuels are still heavily subsidized yes, around the world. Yes. It's but quite it's, ironic. Yes, quite ironic. Exactly. So, yeah. so it, it's, um, it, it's not that we haven't introduced carbon pricing. In fact, we're doing the opposite. You know, we're, we're actually carbon discounting, right? We're promoting, promoting demand for fossil fuel but by, by um, offering subsidies. So, so I think the first step is to get those countries which are still subsidizing fossil fuel to phase that out ASAP. Um, and, and then maybe moving to internalization of the environmental costs of freight transport. And a key part of that then would be the, um, the price that you then attach to carbon-related uh, externalities. One, um, one uh, financial aspect of this or economic aspect that we don't hear a lot about is the issue of um, stranded assets, which could destabilize the financial system. So if you've got companies that have you know, oil reserves or countries with oil reserves on their balance sheet, and suddenly yeah. these reserves are worth nothing um, because the paradigm is shift, that could cause ructions in the financial yeah. system, right? Yes, that could. And uh, I mean, this has been researched. And, and uh, many big banks, for example, in their stress testing are now seeing you know, the effect this could have on their balance sheets and, and their survival. Now, what one rather worrying scenario, um, which um, hopefully will never materialize, is one where the owners of those fossil fuel assets realize that the future demand is going to collapse, right? That there's going to, there are going to be radical climate change policies put into place, uh, which will phase out fossil fuel probably faster than people are expecting. Because what will happen then is those the owners of those assets will want to offload them as quickly as possible while they still have value. And we might then have a sort of fossil fuel binge, you know, <laughs> you know, when they, that will drive down the cost of the fossil fuel, right? Um, and it will make it harder for companies to justify investing in renewables because the cost of the fossil fuel alternative is so low. So one would hope that, that there'll be policy initiatives put in place, really, to minimise the risk of that, that happening. Because, you know, as you know, there's still a lot of coal, oil and gas in the ground. Um, and there's no way we can burn all of that. Uh, and we really have to stop consuming it as quickly as we can. So I have lots of uh, clients who are SME logistics operators, you know, owners of transportation fleets and warehouses. They're concerned about the economics of this transformation. They're kind of fearful of both maybe being victimized in the media on the one hand or hung out to dry uh, economically. And they're also getting pressure then from their own clients, who a lot of them who are multinational corporations who are quite sensitive and keen to be seen to be green as well. Yeah. So what would you advise the owners and managers of these types of businesses to consider now for their future strategies in terms of, well, we spoke about fleet renewal, but say energy sources, people skills, collaboration with supply chain partners and so on. How should they be thinking about that five years, 10 years in the future? One thing they can do, and an increasing number of companies are doing that, is, is shadow carbon price. You know, because they, they, their businesses aren't necessarily subject to that at the moment, but almost certainly in, in maybe not the short term, but in the medium to long term, they will 
really have to factor that into their calculations. Um, and, and so if they're having to make an investment decision, then um, you know, factor into your investment appraisal some future estimate of what the carbon price might be. Um, and uh, I mean, I understand financial institutions these days and the stress testing they have to do to satisfy the needs of, uh, of, of national banks. Um, you know, they're being asked to say what would happen if the carbon price was, you know, three hundred pounds a ton or or a thousand euros, um, just to see how vulnerable their operations mm. would be. Not 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 just to the impact of physical but but in a financial sense you know if we move into a world where carbon is priced and is priced at a relatively high level um yeah so. i think i think that's the reality and uh it's it's worthwhile looking into inevitably i think there are going to be casualties but if you have the wherewithal you start looking at that because i guess if you don't some of the choice business you're not going to get because these multinational corporations are not going to contract your services right yeah i think the good news on this is that there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit that's around, true yeah you know uh, because we looked at the five decarbonization levers um you know the one where you make better use of the assets fill the vehicles better and also improve the energy efficiency a lot of the things you do there um, give you a fairly rapid payback um, and, and are self-financing, you know, in, in the short to medium term. So a lot of this is simply good business practice. The, the regret is that, that harvesting all that low-hanging fruit isn't going to deliver the, the really deep reductions and emissions that we will require. But at least it gets us started in the process. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then there's a diagram I often use in my presentation. So the first part of it is where we're sliding down this, this low hanging fruit curve, if you like, where we're cutting cost as well as cutting carbon. Um, eventually, we will exhaust all of that low hanging fruit and there'll be a rebound when the carbon mitigation costs start to rise again. Um, and it may be to, to get to net zero by 2040, 2050 we really have to then start to do some fairly draconian things, you know, and that's when it's going to get tough and, and where companies may have to sacrifice more profitability and their investment returns may decline and so forth. But but that, that could be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years away. You know, in the meantime, there are things that we can do that, um, as, as I say, will, will be relatively self-financing. Yeah, so we have we have our work cut out for us. So uh, as we uh, come into the last couple of minutes, we might just uh, change gears and maybe I'll just ask you a question or two about yourself. So when you're not thinking about uh, decarbonizing the logistics industry, what kind of things do you like to do in your spare time? My main recreation is playing the piano. Really? Playing, uh, Interesting. Playing the piano since I was eight. Uh, oh, okay. So, and, uh, yeah, I, I find that so relaxing and um, and creative so yeah i i often think that about people who are musicians that it must be a great kind of solace for them a great kind of comfort because you see you see when they're doing it they're almost in trance right <laughs> that's right and, and uh, when i um, work in because my home is in edinburgh here when i go to klu i've actually got an electronic keyboard in my office there sitting right beside my desk <laughs> so so i i when I need to relax, I put headphones on and just play away, and, and, and that's a, a wonderful distraction. Excellent. So uh, to finish, then, how can listeners uh, find out uh, more about you, more about your your work and uh, and your research uh, online or bookshops or so on? 
Okay, so I have my own personal website, um, which is uh, uk. Um, so all my life's work is on that website, it, including some of my piano playing as well. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, but, but also my, my university, um, KLU, um, KLU.org. Um, I, again, I've got a personal page there, which is my publication listed. And um, I always plug my book, Decarbonizing Logistics. Decarbonizing Logistics by yes. Alan McKinnon. And then you've That's got... Right. Uh, klu.org which is the university website and then alanmckinnon.co.uk uh, which is your personal yeah, website www.the-klu.org and that's the university in hamburg which is a private university dedicated to logistics Exactly, which we haven't spoken about. So it was founded in 2010. Uh, it's in its an 11th year, and, and it's a university. We think it's the only one in the world, really, which uh, focuses very much on, on logistics operations. Well, thank you, Alan. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I wish you every success, both personally and professionally. Well, thank you, Patrick. That's great. And thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. Any comments or questions, just drop me a line on PDALY, PDaily at Alba Logistics, A-L-B-A Logistics.com. So keep well and stay safe until next time. Mm-hmm.